Welcome to Breaking Green Ceilings, the podcast that amplifies the diverse voices of those who are committed to protecting and sustainably managing our natural environment. I'm your host, Sapna Mulki. Let's get started. This is the last episode of season one of Breaking Green Ceilings. I have a mixed feelings. I'm sad, but I'm also just so humbled and grateful for all the 40 guests that we've had on the podcast over a span of 10 months. It has been just extremely empowering and revitalizing, I feel, for my soul to a certain extent. And I really hope that it has been the same for you. I hope that it has given you a sense of hope, a sense of awareness, and also a sense of acting on some of the injustices that our community, our society experiences, and to see what your role or your purpose is in all of this. I made this episode the last episode because... This month is Native Heritage Month in the United States. And I hope that this episode will serve as a timely reminder of the need to prioritize the well-being and prosperity of Native tribes in North America. And so it brings great joy and honor to introduce to you Jason Baldis, who is a member of the Eastern Shoshone tribe from the Wind River Indian Reservation in Wyoming. In this episode, we talk about Jason's journey of collaboration in bringing back bison or buffalo to the reservation after over 130 years. Two centuries ago, there were between 30 to 60 million buffalo roaming North America. Buffalo have deep significance in native culture and livelihoods. Jason explains how the buffalo served as the commissary for many native tribes, white settlers in the 1800s who were driven by the manifest destiny knew this. And so in order to starve and steal land from the native tribes and relegate them to reservations, white settlers massacred buffalo throughout the West. By the end of the 19th century, only 300 buffalo were left in the wild, mainly in Yosemite the last source of free-roaming, genetically pure bison. You'll know in this episode why genetics matter in bringing back buffalo. So in 2016, when the hooves of the first 10 buffalo touched the reservation once again in over 100 years, one can only imagine the power in that moment. This was the beginning of something that Jason's father, Richard Baldis, started over 40 years ago. And the goal is to establish conservation herds that roam across millions of acres of the reservation. And so it was really uplifting to talk to Jason about what that moment meant to him and to his people and the smarts that it took to carefully orchestrate a collaboration between federal agencies, nonprofit conservation groups like the National Wildlife Federation that Jason collaborates with, and also the Intertribal Buffalo Council. And all of this for a greater cause of reviving a culture that is closely tied to a relationship with buffalo. The full return of the buffalo is a journey yet to come to fruition. 
But we know it will because Wind River Reservation has restored six of the seven ungulate species that were historically present on their tribal lands. And not to mention the wolves and other wildlife that are no longer in decline. That's a massive deal. Just thinking about it fills my heart with so much joy and hope. One of the main lessons I learned from preparing for this conversation is that there are other efforts that Native tribes across the country have been involved in for decades to revive their ecosystems from the injustices and violations brought upon them by the white settlers. And it is truly very empowering. I really hope this conversation with Jason revitalizes you like it did for me. I look forward to speaking to you or hearing from you in season two. Look out for new updates on when that's going to happen. Have a lovely rest of the year. Take care. So thank you again, Jason, for making time for us on the Breaking Green Ceilings podcast. So then we'll just get started into it. So today we're here to talk about your efforts on restoring genetically reputable disease-free buffalo to be managed as wildlife by the Eastern Shoshone tribal lands of Wind River Indian Reservation, which is also shared with the Northern Arapaho tribe. So what inspired you to dedicate your life to this cause? Well, uh, good morning to you, Sapna. I appreciate the opportunity to visit with you. Thank you. Growing up, I was fortunate to have an upbringing where I was hunting and fishing and, and gathering in a traditional way that I learned from my dad. He was a biologist, retired now. And we spent a lot of time in the backcountry of the, the Wind River Reservation. There's a lot of history of conservation here in that kind of began in the 30s with the establishment of a wilderness roadless area that contains over 200 lakes and several hundred miles of rivers and streams. And this happened 26 years before the Federal Wilderness Act. And in fact, a lot of the language in the Wilderness Act comes from the designation of our wilderness wilderness area. And the biologist, he wanted to understand the health of the fishery. Previous biologists had reintroduced exotic species, which was a detriment to the native Yellowstone cutthroat trout. And so his work was to restore those water bodies and river systems to the integrity that, that they once had with the native trout. And so I had a kind of a firsthand experience growing up with my dad as a fisheries and wildlife biologist. And prior to 1984, the pronghorn antelope and bighorn sheep were extirpated from the reservation due to unregulated hunting. And this is a result of the diminishment of our territory, our, our reservation boundaries. Unregulated hunting, obviously the populations of wildlife diminished. And after 1984, the tribes implemented a game code setting seasons and bag limits on our wildlife species, allowing for the management of those species, but also the reintroduction of pronghorn antelope and bighorn sheep. So as a young child, I was there to witness not only the capture of those animals, but then the release back here on the reservation. So recognizing and understanding the importance of wildlife management really kind of was a foundation for me in moving forward. And then he retired and we took a trip to East Africa together and witnessed the wildebeest migration there. And that was unfathomable to me because of the sheer number. We drove for over 100 miles and in every direction you looked, you could see wildebeest as far as the eye could see. And you count 30, uh, 
other species in association with that migration. What was even more unfathomable to me was that that was less than 5% of what the bison was here less than 200 years ago. So I was inspired to know more about my history, where I come from, and our relationship to that buffalo, to that bison. So I knew I needed to have a science degree. When I returned home, I, I kind of haphazardly thought about how to do uh, this work and really ultimately decided to go to, to Montana State University and get an undergraduate and graduate degree in a multidisciplinary, unsiloed education where I would have the tools necessary to do this work. And I was able to partner with the National Wildlife Federation doing contractual work. The, the Shoshone tribe, through efforts of other individuals who were very supportive of, of Buffalo restoration, in particular, Lynette St. Clair pushed a resolution in front of our general council to pass a law moving forward with Buffalo restoration on behalf of the Shoshone tribe. This was... Uh, 2009, and then 2010, I graduated with my undergraduate and moved right into a graduate program, again, focusing on bison restoration on, on tribal lands. And that eventually led to a position with the National Wildlife Federation and the Tribal Partnerships Program to not only assist the tribe here in terms of, of what that would look like, but also other tribes looking to restore buffalo back to their reservation homelands and communities. Because it's for Native American people, the, the buffalo was uh, life's commissary. It was uh, prior to European arrival and settlers getting here, we had the wildlife economy. There was no money here. There was wealth in the biodiversity of animals and fish and the health of plants and the ecosystem in its entirety. With the introduction of money and the policies of the federal government that it, it promoted agriculture and land division and ownership, it created challenges and obstacles to really the maintenance of the cultural values that the tribe had here when the reservation was established because the tribes in negotiating with the federal government reserved lands in perpetuity, reservations, so that we would maintain our language, our customs, our culture, our values. And ultimately, the federal government failed that obligation Every treaty made with the federal government had been violated or broken in some way. And with the diminishment of the land base and acts of Congress, like the General Allotment Act that opened up reservations for homesteading, there's been a great challenge in the worldview of Native people and non-Native people in terms of how water is used or how land is used or how livestock has precedence over the wildlife. These systems that have been imposed are, in a sense, backward to how the Native people lived and valued the systems that were here. So today, tribes have uh, an opportunity to really exercise sovereignty. We're in an era of self-determination. The tribe have the ability to dictate, make decisions for our communities, our land base. And oftentimes, the assimilation and the colonization of our communities is disrupted by our worldview. And so it's really to uphold the values and morals of the grandmas and grandpas that came before us that understood the value of biodiversity. Maybe didn't know that word, but they knew that the animals and the plants, the water, that they are our relatives yeah. and that we must take care of these things. 
take care of them in a reciprocal right. way. So we benefit by the food source and the materials provided by those animals, but we also have to make sound decisions in wildlife management because wildlife management is a lot less about managing the wildlife as it is about managing people. And so really the community building the support system around these efforts, not only in terms of buffalo, but in terms of how we utilize our, our other animal relatives, the water relatives, or the, the fish, and prioritizing them over systems that were imposed upon us, like agriculture. So it becomes a, a, an interesting dichotomy in, in how we move forward in terms of really exercising sovereignty, working on cultural revitalization efforts, while also balancing these multi-use efforts in terms of how we utilize these resources. Yeah. Thank you so much for sharing that. I think that really encapsulates our conversation well, and hopefully I'll be able to dig in a little bit more into some of those details. But I heard that your father was an inspiration for you taking this path. I heard that there's also a desire to undo some of these colonial ways of managing nature and thinking of nature as kin to us and also just finding ways to go back to our indigenous knowledge. So you mentioned that when you're in Eastern Africa, which I'm so excited that you were, you got to see the wildebeest migration that's on my bucket list. And I know a lot of people say that, but it's sad that I'm from Kenya, but I haven't had a chance to see the migration, but it is expensive even for the local people, <laughs> at least growing up. But it's really spectacular experience. And when you said that the wildebeest don't make 5% of the original population of the buffalo, that like really took me by surprise. And I learned that there were two centuries ago, there were about 30 million buffalo roaming around North America. But then by the 19th century, it went down to 100 and you mentioned most of them are in Yellowstone today. Could you tell us briefly about the history of the buffalo? How did we go from 30 million to just 100 in less than 100 years? How did that happen? Well, 30 million is a conservative estimate. It's more like wow. 60 to 100 okay. million that Lewis and Clark witnessed when they came out in 1804. And prior to that, you know, there would have been larger numbers just because of European encroachment up to St. Louis. So there was buffalo that would have been east of, of St. Louis prior to that. But the history of the United States has always kind of been at odds with the indigenous people because of Christianity and the manifest destiny, the notion that Native American peoples, because they were non-Christian or were non-human, therefore couldn't own land and were not recognized as people who, who were here prior to European arrival. It was estimated that there were 80 to 100 million people here when Cortez first arrived. And there's evidence of the Vikings being here. There's evidence of Polynesians being here. So the notion that Christopher Columbus arrived here and that was the beginning is just a bad history also. When the founding fathers of this country developed the Constitution, the Declaration of Independence, they modeled it after the Iroquois Confederacy the tribes that were living uh, in the Northeast, because it was where they witnessed what democracy looked like. Our Native American peoples were matriarchal prior to 
colonization. And today we're more patriarchal than we are matriarchal. And so the, in a lot of the native cultures and tribes, the eldest women were held in the highest regard. They had the last word. And the Native American people had a way of looking at life that was a holistic view that today we think about Alan Savory and his work in the holistic model of agriculture. It really models and what Native American people did. And, and we call it the, the medicine wheel philosophy or the medicine wheel that everything happens in a circle. Everything happens in force. This worldview uh, allowed for a belief system that was about reciprocity. And Lewis and Clark would have never made it from St. Louis to the Pacific if compassion and empathy were not core values of Native American people. And so, you know, there was a lot of things that happened historically that shows that and the belief systems of, of our spirituality today, it still encapsulates that compassion and loving and empathy and understanding of one another, regardless of our color or creed. And that was the foundation of that democracy of the Iroquois Confederacy. Well, that, that's been morphed and made into something that does no longer follow what they wrote down in terms of what a democracy was supposed to be. There was over 800 treaties made with the federal government. And if you look up what a treaty is, it's supposed to be the supreme law of the land. However, 400 treaties were ratified and, you know, but 800 of them were, were broken and lands were diminished and promises were not kept. Skirmishes and things happened as pioneers moved west. The Oregon Trail, the California Trail, the these various trails converged right through the Shoshone territory. It was after the Battle of Bighorn because it was, you know, the Black Hills were essentially stolen from the Lakota people because of gold. And even today, the Lakota people have not accepted any money for what the federal government is offering for the Black Hills. They won't accept money because you can't put a price on that. Nonetheless, lands were taken illegally. Skirmishes increased, and after the Battle of the Little Bighorn, where General George Armstrong Custer was killed by the Ogallala Lakota and the Cheyenne and the Arapaho, it was congressionally encouraged to kill as many buffalo as possible in order to subdue and starve the Native American people. So those trains that were being built west, the settlers and Europeans and explorers coming west, they would indiscriminately kill buffalo oftentimes only taking the hides and the tongues. The hides allowed for the Industrial Revolution to kind of ramp up in the east. So those hides were shipped to the east and made into belts for industry. But the bones, they say, littered the prairie to an extent where it looked like snow in the middle of summer. And so they would go out in wagons and they would gather up those bones and take them to the trains and those were also shipped east, and those bones were ground up and made into fertilizer in fine China. And so that was from 1804 when Lewis and Clark witnessed the 30 to 60 million buffalo. By 1902, there were less than 100 left, and 23 of them were in Yellowstone. And so folks like William Hornaday and Theodore Roosevelt recognized that the species was going to go extinct. They didn't really care about the cultural connection to Native Americans, but they valued the buffalo so that they could hunt it, kill it. So they knew that the, it was going to go extinct if they didn't do anything. So they started the American Bison Society. 
that allowed for some of those animals to uh, from Yellowstone to go to places like the Bronx Zoo and a place in Texas and Kansas and kind of start new source populations of the pure mm-hmm. genetics. Being that there was only a few buffalo left in Yellowstone, that also meant that reservations are where Indians were now. Uh, so in the 1860s, 1840s, 50s, 60s, tribes were forced onto reservations. The buffalo were decimated. There was no more buffalo on the landscape. So that made way for these large cattle and beef operations to move into these large landscapes. Many of these beef operations are still in existence today. And the federal government, beginning then, encouraged and promoted agriculture and cattle grazing and cattle establishment. And oftentimes, those cows were susceptible to climate because being an invasive species, they are not adapted to the cold, harsh conditions and would routinely freeze to death. So in an effort to create a better cow, they manipulated the genetics so that a cow and a buffalo bred create cattle or other sex ratio beefalo. So that created cattle gene integration in the bison genome. Now, buffalo and cows do not breed on their own. It's manipulated. And so if you have cows and buffalo on the landscape together, there is no integration. But in those early days, in an effort to make a better cow, they created cattle and beefalo. Today, there's about 850,000 bison in the United States, but 90% of those have cattle gene integration. And they're also managed for commercial meat production. So the genome of buffalo is still under threat because there's less than 25,000 buffalo that are genetically pure that exist under natural regulating factors like predation or the conditions of the environment. That's the area of conservation that I work in. The Department of Interior manages 12 conservation populations. There's a few tribal herds that are considered conservation populations. And so that's really what we're working on is to establish satellite populations of genetically pure, but also certified disease-free buffalo on tribal lands and ultimately on the public lands. Because buffalo restoration is not just a Native American story, it's an American story that, as you pointed out earlier, is not often in the history books. People don't know. People haven't learned about what happened to Native Americans and what happened to that buffalo. So, you know, in 2016, the buffalo was recognized as our national mammal, but we still have to go to parks and refuges and private ranches to see buffalo. There is essentially very few places where buffalo exist as wildlife, genetically pure, with no cattle gene integration that exist as the one above intended. And just like all of our other wildlife species on this reservation, we have pronghorn antelope and mule deer, white-tailed deer, elk, bighorn sheep, moose, and the predators. And so we have all of the animals present on this reservation and being managed that were here when Lewis and Clark arrived in 1804. There's very few reservations that can lay claim to that, that we have access to our traditional foods because of of wildlife management. The only one to manage as wildlife, though, is, is the buffalo. And it's because of a paradigm shift that we're stuck in. We forgot how to see them. We don't know how to utilize them anymore. And they've been absent from our communities for so long that we've forgotten how to, to see them, to use them, to benefit by eating them. And that's why it's so important in bison restoration today that we grow 
the ownership and grow the understanding amongst our young people that they have something to be proud of as Shoshone or Arapaho or Crow or Cheyenne or Lakota, whatever. As we as Buffalo people, we will heal as we restore this animal to our communities, whether that's taking a young person to see the buffalo and they get to take a piece of hair from that buffalo, or it's being able to eat a buffalo burger or a buffalo steak, or being able to learn how to tan a hide, or be able to go into a ceremony and use those parts of that buffalo for the purposes uh, passed down from our elders. And so the effort is not only about cultural revitalization, because that buffalo is so important to us as a people, but it's also about ecological restoration, because that buffalo is a keystone species. As a keystone species, they benefit almost every other organism on the landscape, from birds to insects and butterflies, mammals like uh, prairie dogs and badgers and black-footed ferrets. Certain bird species need buffalo hair for their eggs to reach the right incubation temperature. Also, many plants, because buffalo are graminoid feeders, they eat primarily the grasses, they leave the forb species to grow, which increases biodiversity. And many of those forbs were traditionally used as foods, tools, and medicines. And so that buffalo promotes not only the animal and plant biodiversity, but it also makes things available because of their behavior. They create these wallows because of their dust bathing behavior, which is incredibly important for water accumulation. They create ephemeral pools of water. A buffalo has seven times the hair per square inch as a cow. And they have twice the surface area on their teeth and they can control their metabolism so that they can eat less hardy forage. They don't congregate in riparian areas. So lots of their behaviors of buffalo is beneficial to the landscape. And if we are talking about ecological restoration as opposed to prioritizing agricultural or grazing on public lands, our public lands in the West would benefit a lot from having buffalo as the keystone species to improve the ecological integrity. Yeah, as you were telling the story of how they annihilated the buffalo populations, there's this one really iconic image of this mountain of bison skulls. And as you were talking about it, it's like the second time I've heard you talk about it, but it just, I still have that same tight feeling in my belly where I'm just like so disappointed, but angry. But then now you were talking about how you've been able to reintroduce all of these keystone species within your ancestral lands like that is a really uplifting story and they're not like you said not very many reservations that have been able to do that so how have you been able to do that to help bring or restore the lands to i guess as close as possible to their original state prior to colonization is there like one or two factors that have made that possible yeah We're a long way from being where we need to be, but we're taking steps in the right direction. This effort could have never worked without partnership and collaboration. The National Wildlife Federation is the largest member-based conservation organization in the U.S., but only in the last 20 years or so has that organization recognized and prioritized supporting tribes and supporting sovereignty and self-determination of the tribes. And so the financial resources needed to get to where we are wouldn't have been possible without that. There's also 
organizations like the Intertribal Buffalo Council, which is a membership of 69 tribes that assists tribes in bison restoration. Those two entities have been incredibly important in this effort. Witnessing the restoration of pronghorn antelope and bighorn sheep as a kid, it really helped me understand what a wildlife restoration effort should look like. That is that we go and we capture animals in their habitat and we bring them to their new habitat and let them go. Now, because of that paradigm that I was speaking about in terms of buffalo, a wildlife restoration effort wouldn't work because of their classification as wildlife, because buffalo in the United States are considered livestock, Mm. unless they're in the national parks. They're essentially still not wildlife because they can't leave the boundaries. They're essentially still fenced in. So that's a policy change, and that takes some time and effort. But in order to get buffalo on the ground and to make some headway in taking 131 years to get buffalo restored on behalf of the tribe. Because of that, we have to work on that paradigm shift for our own people too. So Shoshone tribe said, let's start small and we'll, we'll expand from there so that we can grow the community support and ownership around it. So we started on 300 acres and that is still currently where our buffalo are, 300 acres. But the next step is to allow them to exist on 67,000 acres. That would be a significant increase in the land base. However, it's not where we need to be in five or 10 years because we have more habitat on this reservation than what's even available for the Buffalo and Yellowstone. We have hundreds of thousands of acres in the Wind River Mountains to the west and the Alcrick Mountains to the north, where we have summer and winter range habitat that would be available for Buffalo. Now, in uh, 1984, when our game code was established, buffalo were not included in that language, likely because the leadership at that time could never foresee that we would have buffalo again. And so today we are working to implement language specific to buffalo conservation in our tribal game code into our law so that they can be managed as wildlife, but also designated as wildlife under our own. And that law supersedes the state. And so there's uh, controversy, there's conflict in terms of that distinguishment, but we have the ability to do that as a sovereign government. But the other thing is for law enforcement. And so if we are able to expand to the 67,000 acres, that is lands that are currently being grazed by cattle from some of tribal cattle operators. And so we want to create financial incentive for those individuals. So through the National Wildlife Federation, we will raise money to provide financial incentive for those cattle grazers to change their grazing permit to elsewhere. And so that it's a win-win, not only for the buffalo, but also for that land grazing permittee holder. And so as we identify those individuals and sit down and have coffee with them and, and talk about the importance, again, of Buffalo for future generations and providing financial incentive to do that, then we're able to essentially set that 67,000 acres aside completely for Buffalo restoration. Uh, Not to say that cattle couldn't exist there too, they could, but to make appeasing to everybody, it'd be best if that 67,000 acres was designated as our Wind River Buffalo Management Area. It's not designated for one tribe or the other. And in fact, it would allow us to integrate the Shoshone tribe's buffalo with the Northern Arapaho tribe's buffalo. 
Both populations are Yellowstone genetics, but also certified disease-free. And that's been coordinated with the Arapaho tribe. And so the hope is that we can combine our animals, grow our population to five to 700 animals to begin using them again, having draws for tags for tribal members to hunt them, but really to grow the population so that we can expand and make more habitat available for them. So it's a piecemeal approach as opposed to just doing a wildlife restoration effort. And in this way, we're able to grow uh, community support. We're able to promote uh, some, some elements of ecotourism, educational opportunities for our young people, cultural and ceremonial use of the animals again for, for those ceremonies that are tied to that animal. And that, in a sense, will allow for the necessary community support as we step out of that paradigm and recognize that we have probably the most potential on this reservation for what wild buffalo management can be, as opposed to many other reservations. But it really can set precedent for what we can do for wild buffalo management, ecological integrity and restoration. But that can also trickle into how we manage our public lands. And there's a lot of public support for buffalo in our public lands in the West. But that's policy. We have to work with our state and federal agencies to ensure that we're, we're going about it in, in a way that's going to be most beneficial and successful for that buffalo and for the, the public or in this situation, yeah. the tribes. What you were describing was you earlier mentioned is wildlife management, which is management of the people. It's really taking a more holistic perspective of understanding the needs of the buffalo but also understanding the needs of the people. And in this case, is it the cattle farmers? What's the correct term for that? The cattlemen, yeah. And then also understanding the, finding ways to build a partnership with the Arapaho and then also understanding kind of like the politics of reintroducing the buffalo into these spaces again. I was curious to know a couple of things based on what you shared is when we spoke the first time, you were talking about the unfounded fears of the brucellosis, if I'm saying that correctly. It's a disease that cattle farmers believed that the bison had and could pass on to the cattle. Is that kind of misconception still existing in the current like indigenous cattle farmers' minds? And how are you trying to like undo some of that misinformation? Well... Cattle brought brucellosis in the first place and infected life. And so as buffalo were decimated and they were left in Yellowstone and eventually that population grew, you know, brucellosis was pretty prevalent in most cattle up until the 40s and 50s. And states like Montana, Wyoming, Idaho wanted to be able to export their beef throughout the U.S. as certified disease-free. And in order to do that, they had to wipe out all the livestock that had brucellosis so that they could create brucellosis-free states. And buffalo and uh, elk had brucellosis. And today in the United States, the only pocket where brucellosis exists is in and around Yellowstone. There's never been a documented case of a buffalo giving a cow brucellosis. But there has been documented cases of elk giving cattle brucellosis. But elk can move freely across those jurisdictional boundaries. Buffalo cannot. And so we have a situation where the management hasn't caught up to the science. So it's a strange dichotomy that elk can move freely, but buffalo cannot. 
when we want to have brucellosis free states. Another uh, very controversial thing that happens is, is the feed grounds. So Wyoming has 20 plus feed grounds in the state where they feed elk. We were really concerned about disease. Those feed grounds would be uh, eliminated because if we're concerned about brucellosis, which is controversial, but it's not a deadly disease like chronic wasting disease. So chronic wasting disease is much deadlier to not only livestock, but also the wildlife. And so it seems funny that, that farmers and ranchers are so concerned about brucellosis when they continue to feed and possibly promote CWD. By 1997, there were over a thousand buffalo killed as they stepped outside of Yellowstone in order to find winter forage. It was a tough winter. Buffalo in Yellowstone don't have winter forage. They have to go to lower elevations. And they stepped outside of that imaginary boundary and, and the Montana Wyoming Department of Livestock and the Animal Plant Health Inspection Service was up in arms because as soon as that buffalo stepped outside of that boundary, they are seen as a nuisance or a pest or a disease threat. So that's why they were shot and killed. Organizations like the Intertribal Buffalo Council and the National Wildlife Federation and others proposed a quarantine facility. And this quarantine was set up so that we can ensure that more live buffalo are getting out of Yellowstone. Then in that process, they go through a series of months with rigorous testing. And after animals uh, have been through that an amount of time, then they can be deemed certified disease-free. So because of that quarantine facility, we've been able to get live buffalo to tribes. For instance, the Fort Peck tribes in Montana have received over 200 Yellowstone buffalo through that quarantine program. So that program is very important, but at the same time, 60% of the buffalo that go through it are automatically killed because they have brucellosis or they test positive for antibodies for brucellosis. Only 40% of those animals are making it out alive and get to tribes or reservations. And so the effort has increased. Not only is the quarantine program important there at Yellowstone, but tribes have begun starting a quarantine program, specifically Fort Peck, where they potentially receive Yellowstone buffalo, deem them as certified disease-free, and then make them available to tribes. And so that has been a very good process. We're potentially thinking of establishing a quarantine facility here at Wind River because that could really make more buffalo available because Fort Peck at this time sits without the designated surveillance area for brucellosis because they're too far away. But the Wind River tribes here are within that DSA. And so that creates mm-hmm. a lot of opportunity potentially for some work. Interesting. So if I understand correctly, the brucellosis that was passed on from the cattle to the buffalo or from the elk to the buffalo? Because you were mentioning like 60% of the buffalo have brucellosis. So how did they get it? They've had it since cows came in the first place, so over 100 years. Oh, wow. Okay, so is it just like dormant in them? I wouldn't necessarily say it's dormant, but they carry either brucellosis or they carry antibodies to brucellosis. Gotcha, gotcha. Okay, interesting. So... I read that in 2016, about 10 wild Yellowstone bison were reintroduced to the Wind River Reservation. Is that number different? No, the number is right, but they came from the Neil Smith Wildlife Refuge in Iowa. Gotcha. They have 
genetics, but they came from the conservation population managed by the Department of Interior from that National Wildlife Refuge. Okay. Thank you for correcting that. So this was an initiative that was shared between the Eastern Shoshone as well as the Northern Arapaho tribes. And that was, no? No. no. Correct me again. <laughs> okay. So, so the Eastern Shoshone tribe has about 33 buffalo. The first 10 came from the Neil Smith Wildlife Refuge in Iowa. In 2017, we brought 10 more from the National Bison Range in Montana. Okay. And then 2019, we brought five from the Fort Peck tribes in a tribe-to-tribe agreement. And in 2019, the Northern Arapaho tribe received 10 buffalo from the National Bison Range in Montana. Gotcha. Okay. Thank you for clarifying that timeline. Appreciate it. So I've seen photos of like the moments where the buffalo are being released into these beautiful open grasslands. For you in that moment, what did it feel like for you like in your heart <laughs> just to see the buffalo going into like the native lands? Well, it was a very emotional time because they arrived late at night and they were on a horse trailer and we let them off. And it was kind of like when that first hoof hit the ground, it really kind of sunk in about what was really happening. It was an emotional time because so many people, including my dad, had worked so hard on this issue for many, many years. And it was kind of the culmination of so many people's hard work and dedication. I stand on the shoulders of giants. And so the folks who worked on this for a very long time before me really made it possible. And we brought them to 300 acres. And so that didn't feel like we were doing a wildlife restoration effort, but it was a huge step to get them here. It took 130 years for that to happen. And so that was a long time coming, to say the least. But as we continue to make small victories in terms of getting to that big picture of managing buffalo's wildlife on hundreds of thousands of acres, it's a process. And so we have to take those successes along with the challenges and celebrate those small victories when we have them. And we continue to have those small victories moving in the right direction, partnering with the Northern Arapaho tribe and ensuring that the, the management plans are in place for managing these animals as wildlife species, ensuring that, that the people have ownership in that and that the community is, is really in support and has that belief in what we're trying to do. And I think that as that momentum builds and that conversations happen on their own and people recognize the, the land base that we have here for its potential, we're just coming into hunting season now and, and many, many of our tribal members uh, subsist on our wildlife species, our, our pronghorn antelope and deer and elk and moose and bighorn sheep. Someday that buffalo is going to be included in that. And our people will be able to go and harvest the buffalo. That is the point at which I think we will have succeeded in really getting to somewhere and putting something back that was taken from us. So, you know, it really does start with the young people because it could be that our fourth and fifth graders today are the ones making the decision in 10 or 15 years about the direction we need to continue in. And so those young people are really key to ensuring that they understand that buffalo is very important to who we are, Shoshone people. But it's also very important that we give them the ultimate respect 
and that is to let them exist as they were intended by the one above. And all we have to do is to step outside of our boxes and our comfort zone and think holistically, cyclically, behind that medicine wheel about how important these animals are to us now, but how much more important they're going to be to people in the future. Mm -hmm. I have like one more question and then to go into the lightning round, but I want to be respectful of your time here. We just have like four minutes. So do you have a few more minutes beyond that? If not, yeah. we can, okay. So the one question that I did have with regards to our topic today was, you mentioned that the buffalo are the commissary of, they're like the Walmart for your community. And that's one of the things that messages that you try to pass on to the younger generation about the importance of buffalo. Could you tell us a little bit about what you mean by that, that the buffalo is the commissary or Walmart? Yeah, so buffalo is life's commissary because it provided the food, the clothing, tools, and shelter for our ancestors. And so we were, I wouldn't say nomadic because nomadic implies you don't know where you're going. But we were nomadic in the sense that we traveled for our different food sources and for different resources. So our territory in the 1860s was vast. And in the Treaty of 1863 that established Shoshone Reservation, it was 44 million acres because the federal agents at that time recognized Shoshone people utilized a very large land base, as did other tribes, in order to gather our foods, whether that's fish or birds or four-leggeds or plants, we would go throughout our region to do that. And we lived in mobile lodges. The buffalo hide teepee would have taken about 14 to 16 hides to make one lodge. And so if you had a, a community of 20 teepees, that's over 300 buffalo just in the lodges alone. Yeah. And so it was a shelter. Now, we also have uh, spiritual belief systems that were almost wiped out up until 1978 when the American Indian Religious Freedom Act allowed us to practicing our cultural ceremonial customs. They were outlawed before that. And so our prayer, our church, is also based on the buffalo. That buffalo is part of it. Because the buffalo is seen as a gift from God, it's a gift from Creator. We have a lot of stories that go back to how that animal was provided to us as a means of survival. Uh, subsistence and, and also thriving. We thrived under that wildlife economy. The buffalo made all of that possible because of what it provided, the shelter, the food. We didn't have refrigeration, obviously, but the way that we preserved meat was by drying it. And so dried meat uh, was preserved and mixed with berries, which is rendered down with kidney fat and bound. And that, that was like a Indian granola bar that was provided the essential nutrients that didn't spoil and lasted a very long time, but was also very nutritious. And so as a food, very, very important. When settlers and Europeans came west, they didn't eat the entrails, like the, the liver and the kidneys and the heart, but those were all delicacies for native people, largely because that's where we received most of our essential minerals and nutrients. A lot of uh, settlers and Europeans that came west, they got sick from a scurvy, which is a nutrient deficiency. Today, we get those minerals largely from vegetables, but we still eat those entrails and we didn't get sick from scurvy because of that. The intestines, everything was utilized. The bones, the sinew, the blood, the hair, 
all were made into things. And imagine trying to cook a meal for a community of 40 or 50 people without any pots and pans or metal. How would you do that? We did it by using the buffalo stomach as a punch for carrying water, but also for cooking meals. So you could cook a large meal in a buffalo stomach, and a buffalo has four of those. And so as you would cut that fresh meat up and put it into the stomach with five to eight gallons of water, you you would heat up red hot rocks and put them into that stomach and it would boil the water with the food. The bladder itself is already a natural container that was used like a water bottle. I used to haul water from the rivers and lakes back to camp. And uh, the bones were carved into things like fish hooks and combs and brushes. The scapula on the shoulder blade of the buffalo was very important for making many tools. The ribs were made into things like sleds and were used for games and and improving your skills as a hunter. The tops of the buffalo hump were porous bones that you would use as paintbrushes. And so art, being able to tell stories by painting on hides, you today, we go to Walmart and get a paintbrush, but these bones were used in that. The buffalo skull and the horn sheaths made into many, many tools. The hide itself, if it was a winter hide, allows you to stay warm in in the coldest temperatures that we have. So if you had, that was one of the most prized possessions back in the day was a buffalo robe because that allowed you to stay warm in even the coldest conditions. And so a long time ago, inside the lodge, everything in there would have been from the buffalo or from other animals in that wildlife economy. And so at the commissary, Very important for food, clothing, shelter. But again, the spirituality part of that, that buffalo is a gift from the creator. It's also central to our ceremonies because our ceremonies are about sacrifice. We go without food or water. We go through extreme heat like in our sweat lodge because we believe that if you give, then you can receive. And it's that reciprocity that you don't ever take something without giving. Mm -hmm. And that's also through the way that we pray. That when you go into a Sundance, you're going without food and water for three or four days so that you can appreciate and value and understand the connection we have with them as human beings. And at the beginning of that, that Sundance, we have to have a, a live buffalo heart to use in the ground. And that's because of that connection with our Mother Earth, with that gift of that buffalo from the Creator but also as we sacrifice ourselves to receive good things from the spirit world or from God. And so when I say it's life's commissary, I mean that it was everything to us. And today we only have bits and pieces of it, but being able to reincorporate it and value it, even if it's in a a minimal way compared to what it once was, is about healing and it's about making sure our young people have pride and will essentially have buffalo again available to them in the future. Yeah. Wow, thank you for that. I had no idea about the stomach being a, an ideal pot. <laughs> That's really cool. As you were talking about the buffalo, I don't know why I thought about the cow in Hindu religion. One of our gods, Lord Krishna, said that the cow is more useful to us alive than dead because the cow gives us milk and from that we can make cheese and there's others like it's a source of food for us but as you're explaining what the buffalo is to you all I was like oh that's more than the cow (laughs) a lot more that's pretty impressive okay so 
you've talked a little bit about, and this is the, the last kind of like concluding question is, what is your vision for the buffalo, for native tribes, and for the next generation? Well, I don't think we're going to see 30 to 60 million buffalo on the landscape again in the way that it once was. But I wholeheartedly believe that our tribal people, our buffalo nations, can have access to them again if we allow for it. If we can create the resources necessary to do that, I think that the federal government has trust responsibility to Native American tribes because of treaty. And a lot of that is about food sovereignty. And so if we look at a precedent that's been set in the courts, if we look back at the Bolt decision and how that affected the salmon people in the Northwest, the salmon people, because of that, but the Bolt decision have been allocated federal funding because of the treaty obligation that the federal government has to those tribes. Well, in the same way, the federal government has failed its obligation to the Buffalo people. And so right now, and prior to COVID, we were in D.C. to lobby for the Indian Buffalo Management Act. And that would allocate federal funding to tribes and the Intertribal Buffalo Council to ensure that we have the financial resources needed to restore buffalo to tribal lands. And if it's one buffalo, that's important. If it's 50 buffalo, that's also important. Some tribes are just trying to feed their cool school lunch programs buffalo. Like here, we have the opportunity to set precedent for wild buffalo management. Yeah. So the spectrum of what tribes have the ability and capability to do today, but there's not only the National Wildlife Federation, but the Intertribal Buffalo Council can ensure that those tribes have access to not only the dollars, but, but also to those animals, and specifically the genetically pure certified disease-free animals. Because that will ensure that we're getting those Yellowstone genetics out of Yellowstone and starting satellite populations to improve the bison genome. Because now there's, there's less than 25,000. And the International Union of Conservation and Nature has set a benchmark of 1,000 animals needed to maintain genetic heterogeneity within individual populations. And so of those 12 conservation populations, there is none that reach that thousand animal threshold. And so there's still a lot of need in terms of getting those genetics out there, growing the population, but managing these buffalo on large landscapes. We have to begin thinking outside of the box, outside of the fence, essentially, to assure that buffalo have large land bases to exist on, where we can really see the benefit of them ecologically. If that happens on tribal lands, then those people benefit by having access to those animals for their ceremonial, cultural, uh, subsistence use that they want. Because each tribe has that individual capability and sovereignty to promote what it is they want to see. Growing up here in the Wind River Reservation, having a biologist as a father and seeing the potential that we have I don't want to see us limit ourselves by putting more buffalo behind fences when we have the capability to manage them as wildlife. Yeah. Not everybody has that opportunity, but we do. And so the buffalo conservation on tribal lands, you know, I hope that that trickles over into public lands. Young American people, not just Native American people, need to be able to see these animals 
on the landscape, not just in parks and refuges and private ranches. They need to be on the public lands that we utilize for various recreational purposes. And, you know, in Wyoming, people come from all over the United States to hunt pronghorn antelope on public lands. I can almost guarantee you that the number of people who want to come and hunt a buffalo on public lands will be far greater in number, but also in financial resources brought to the state. And so there's there's incentives. There's the opportunity if we're able to, again, step outside of the fence to be able to see it. And partnership and collaboration creates those opportunities. And we have to work collaboratively, whether that's with the state or with the federal government or with uh, nonprofit organizations, because there's common ground. And if we can find that common ground, it's going to be a lot more likely that we move forward in a better direction as opposed to remaining siloed, just working here on the reservation, just working with one tribe as opposed to all tribes. We're limiting ourselves. And so we have to think outside of the box, outside of the fence, to ensure that that buffalo will become important for everyone. And for Native American tribes, it might be in a different way because we need to eat them. We need to be able to hunt them and we need to be able to respect them in that way. And that's much more respectful than treating them like cows. Well, thank you for that. As you're expanding it, I could just, I'm a very visual person, so I was imagining all of that just coming to life. And it also reminded me that I read somewhere in one of the articles for this interview is that the reintroduction was a result of almost 40 years of work that was started by your father, Dick Baldez. And like you said, there'll be many more years of that kind of piecemealing or piecemeal effort that needs to be put into like a bigger, greater vision. So that's amazing. So thank you for sharing that. So we're going to go into the lightning round here. And it's a series of four questions. You would answer the first thing that comes to your mind. So the first question here is, what have you read, heard, or watched that has influenced you the most? Well, Dances with Wolves, the movie comes to mind because it's where you can see Buffalo Mm. somewhat like they were. That's what came to mind. Mm. I watched that movie when I was very young, but I still remember some few small scenes from it. What's a personal habit that has helped you significantly in your work? Well, I go to sweat ceremonies and, and other types of ceremonies quite often. So as I had finished up academia in Bozeman at Montana State University, it's always been my, I guess, my vow to complete my education and re- return home to go back to my ceremonial customs and belief ways. And so after I've moved home, that's what I do. I went to a sweat ceremony last night. I have another one coming up in a couple of days. And so participation in my spirituality has been a great strength for me. I find great healing and comfort in that participation. Helps me be grounded in who I am and focused on on the work that I'm doing. Yeah, spirituality is very important. I don't do enough of it though. (laughs) Maybe that's why I'm kind of imbalanced here. (laughs) Balance is important. Indeed, indeed. It's really hard to strike, I think. Just trying to undo some of the kind of teachings from, I guess, the Western mindset, but also some of it is also South Asian of like, work, work, work. Yeah, I try to ensure that I'm decolonizing my way of thinking and being consciously aware of where that exists, colonization and assimilation, but even views of Christianity that 
the missionaries that were sent here had a very negative impact. And it's still bad today that, that many of our own people have become Christians. And we have our own way of prayer and belief. And I believe that that's where it's at because that's holistic. That's not dominating kind of how Christianity is that human beings were were made in the figure of God. Well, in our belief ways, we are pitiful because we don't have the things that were given to the animals, like hair on our bodies or four legs to run on. We have to cook our food. So we're taught in our belief ways that human beings are pitiful, that we're at the bottom. We're not at the top. And so being able to be conscious and cognizant of, of kind of those things that influence our thinking, it's important to me too. Yeah, I really appreciate that because this is a series I'd like to do like next year on the podcast is just looking at how different religions perceive nature. And I've taken a course on it. And the religions that we're looking at were South and East Asian religions. And all of those have a more holistic perspective towards nature where we are a part of nature and that there isn't this mindset of dominance over it. And in fact, if you try to dominate, then nature will kind of put you in your place versus Christianity, which is, yes, this was all created for us to flourish and use to improve our own success. So that would be an interesting series and perhaps we can have you if you're willing to speak on it because you seem to be more spiritually leaning, which is what we need. All right. So two last questions. What's the best piece of advice you've received? Well, my dad gave me a bit of advice. He said, uh, don't work for federal government, don't work for tribal government, and don't work for state government. That bit of advice kept me on the road of academia, nonprofits, and entrepreneurship. So I've done academia and I've been in nonprofits and I'm, I'm considering entrepreneurship. That's because of the bureaucracy of those agencies and entities that because of the bureaucracy, you're not able to say and do and work on things that are important or what you believe in. And through his advice, I've been able to ensure that I can do and say what I want. And it doesn't matter if it makes people mad or not. Yeah. I won't lose my job for it. Yeah. That's really one thing that I've found to be positive is your partnership or relationship with the National Wildlife Federation. I think for me, I just expected, based on my experiences at least, like nonprofits have been exploitive of the communities that they've worked with. But it's really nice to see that it's not the case with NWF. So I really appreciate that. So kudos, NWF. Yeah. To do better. (laughs) We're we're developing a, a national tribal strategy at the moment. It's within NWF. So we have 330 employees that will become much more knowledgeable about federal Indian law, but also in how best to work with a tribal government. And so whether it's working on buffalo restoration or wolves or salmon or language revitalization, National Wildlife Federation in our eight regional offices will have the tools necessary to partner and collaborate with those tribes in our in those regions. And so that's unprecedented. And again, yeah, Kudos to NWF for recognizing how important this work is. Yeah, it's amazing. Just putting your money where your mouth is. It's amazing. So last question, what is your superpower? Oh, my superpower. I think I'm good at catching fish. Ooh, 
okay. I just do not have the patience. So yes, that's a superpower from my eyes. <laughs> well, you know, that's not every day though. There's been plenty of days I've been skunked. <laughs> yeah. Those sneaky fish. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, our conversation has come to an end here. Thank you again so much for your time. If others wanted to follow you on your journey, how can we do that? I believe we have a website, nwf.org slash tribal buffalo, tribal bison. Yeah, we'll include it in the show notes. I've been on the website. We have a, a website and several videos up about tribal bison restoration. We have a Facebook page. You can follow the National Wildlife Federation's Tribal Partnerships Program. Then several videos on YouTube, specifically by a filmmaker named Colin Ruggiero. Yeah, there's the one Buffalo film that's on the NWF website that I really want to take a look at. Yeah, and that was Colin's. Okay. So is there anything else that you would like to add before we go our separate ways for now? I don't think so. For your listeners and watchers, please continue to support tribal buffalo restoration efforts and even public buffalo restoration efforts. They go hand in hand. It's an American story. Buffalo are very important uh, today, not only to Native people, but to the landscape. And continue to keep an eye out for tribal bison restoration projects that happen throughout the West and continue to support this work. Thank you, Sapna. Thank you. I'm really excited to see where this goes. So I will definitely be following you. Hey, all Thanks for listening to Breaking Green Ceilings. If you'd like to hear more episodes with change-making environmentalists, head on over to watersavvysolutions.com backslash podcast. You can find me online on Instagram and Twitter. And as always, if you love the show, please don't forget to subscribe, rate, and like on iTunes. You can also sign up for my newsletter to find out when new episodes are available. And please do share the podcast with your family, friends, colleagues, and whoever you think will be inspired by the wisdom of our change makers. I always welcome feedback, so please do feel free to reach out to me. My contact information is also on watersavvysolutions.com. Until next time, keep breaking through those green ceilings.